0: We're delighted to be able to host two distinguished contributors uh, to this discussion. Uh, The first is Professor Andrew Pollard, who's Professor of Pediatric Infection and Immunity at Oxford University, Uh, more saliently or even more saliently in this context. He's also chair of the JCVI, the Joint Committee on Vaccinations and Immunisation, Also, uh, injecting uh, a slightly lighter tone, he's also a mountaineer. I bet he's the only person on the call who's been on a successful Everest expedition. So um, Professor Andrew Pollard is extremely welcome. He'll be followed uh, by our partners in this uh, webinar, this uh, virtual breakfast, uh, Sanofi, the Managing Director of Sanofi in the UK, uh, Hugo Fry will be speaking after Andrew Pollard. Uh, But it's a great pleasure, Andrew, to be able to welcome you to this uh, virtual breakfast. I hope you brought some breakfast or at least a cup of tea. And uh, you're extremely welcome, the chair of the JCVI, uh, to speak on uh, development of effective vaccinations. Andrew.
1: Thank you very much. Um, So let me just uh, get the slides shared. Just give me one second. So you should be seeing the slides now. It looks good to me, Andrew. Right. <clears throat> okay, so uh, thank you very much. I, I, I guess today I'm, I'm speaking really with my academic hat on rather than uh, my uh, policy advisor hat, hat on um, about the uh, coronavirus vaccine development. And I, I think it's important just to start off by uh, pointing out that we already in the last year have had major um, epidemics of um, vaccine-preventable diseases. And so here you can see measles outbreaks last year. And it's rather chilling to think when, when we consider that we're in a pandemic now, um, that last year there were more measles cases in the world and more deaths. Than any time in the last 15 years and one of the big worries about the pandemic which hardly affects children is that uh, neglect of children's health services um, over the course um, of this pandemic is more likely to lead to them dying from other vaccine preventable diseases than it is from the pandemic virus and uh, i think that's a really important context to uh, to think about uh, when we um, consider pandemic vaccines So, you you all know that uh, the uh, pandemic um, has had many cases since the end of December and globally we're seeing this increase in cases following um, an exponential epidemic curve. And certainly uh, in contact uh, with colleagues in Bangladesh and India um, over the uh, the last couple of weeks, there's a a fairly awful situation emerging um, in those uh, settings where the concept of lockdown means putting large numbers of people together in slums um, and uh, being impossible to prevent transmission. Another uh, perhaps important uh, thing just to consider is that how well lockdown and and indeed uh, how well uh, transmission happens differently in different populations and what what these plots show um, and I don't have time to go through them in detail but that in uh, Western societies, uh, the elderly are relatively socially isolated. And that means that they mix much less with people who are likely to be transmitting the virus. And so we have a much greater potential to reduce transmission um, in those who are most vulnerable. But in developing country settings, there's just as much mixing uh, in uh, the elderly as there is with young people. So for example, when Uh, the uh, the graph C there you can see all the lines are completely flat across the ages uh, because uh, the elderly are living in the same household as young children and so transmission to that group um, happens very readily even in a lockdown situation. Uh, The the other thing just to remind everyone is is this uh, quite astonishing difference in uh, fatality depending on age uh, of those who become infected with coronavirus And uh, my my youngest son, who's 16, took great pleasure in telling me I'm a hundred times more likely to die than he is um, if uh, I were to get coronavirus. And uh, as you look as the ages increase, the the mortality in the over 80s is around about 10%. um, But with a very high proportion um, of those who admitted to hospital ending up in the ICU. Now, this is what we were expecting uh, to happen in the UK if there was no lockdown. And uh, the, these very large numbers uh, of deaths and a prediction of around about uh, somewhere between two hundred and 500,000 deaths uh, occurring um, in the UK. Now, this uh, was uh, this trajectory was uh, being moved along. The modelers were, I think, were fairly accurate. Uh, they clearly, there's some uncertainty about the total number. But things were moving along in that direction. And uh, you'll, uh, I'm sure, be familiar with the... Uh, the modelling that was done um, by Neil Ferguson's team at Imperial College showing the uh, potential impact of different types of lockdown that were possible. And here you can see in the green line really where we are, which is with a very substantial lockdown, keeping us below the capacity of critical care beds, which is the red line here. And it may be that the lockdown has been even more effective than this and we're somewhere uh, below this line. But I think one really important thing to notice here is that if uh, we do have a successful lockdown, it means that the vast majority of the population remains susceptible to this virus and there's a high chance of a second wave occurring, which you can see on this blown up part of the graph here, the second wave occurring in the autumn. So what about the vaccine strategy? Well, if, if we had a vaccine today, we think that less than 10% and possibly less than 5% of the UK population are infected at this moment. And so a vaccine today would be given to the whole population to try to control uh, the pandemic. But the other strategy which might be uh, the right thing to do with a shortage of supply would be to target healthcare workers to protect them, those who are particularly at risk such as older adults, those with uh, other types of uh, medical problem, uh, which we know are associated um, with uh, increased um, risk of death from coronavirus, and perhaps the most important of these so far coming out of the statistics is um, obesity as the, the the strongest predictor of death from coronavirus um, uh, the, the other approach which I think uh, most governments will take is just to take influenza risk groups because we have much better data on influenza and target those groups for coronavirus vaccination so what 's happening with current vaccine development well there 's Uh, Currently, around 78 different candidates which are um, being developed around the world. Uh, The the large proportion of those are in an exploratory stage, uh, which are the the first two bars on this chart. Um, But then we have a number that have moved uh, forwards uh, to preclinical development, which uh, means uh, studies either in the laboratory or in animals, um, and then a small number that have reached phase one um, clinical trials. And of those which are today in clinical development, um, there is uh, a vaccine being developed in China, uh, the Moderna vaccine in the US. Uh, here in Oxford, we have uh, a vaccine that is uh, just uh, beginning, Innovio had a DNA vaccine, and the Shenzhen Genome Institute have two different vaccines. So there's, there's totally, uh, a total at the moment, six that are already in clinical development, and there are many others which will be into trials um, over the next couple of months. So what about uh, this virus and how do we make a vaccine? So this is what the virus looks like. And the important thing uh, is that on the surface um, are these proteins called spike protein. And we know from previous coronaviruses that this particular protein is really important in making protective immune responses. So if we're exposed to a coronavirus, our bodies make an immune response against this protein uh, conferring protection. And so the vast majority of the vaccines in in the development uh, use this protein uh, to make the vaccine. So they obviously they're not uh, largely using the whole virus. They're trying to just take a part of it, which is entirely safe. And we actually know a lot about coronaviruses because there's been two previous epidemics. There's SARS in 2003. Um, In this uh, particular uh, outbreak, there were 8000 cases and 900 deaths and a lot of work went into vaccine development, uh, which showed us that spike protein was an important component um, for for all vaccines um, in making immune responses. Uh, Then uh, in uh, 2014, 15, uh, 16, we had 15, 16, uh, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, another coronavirus um, caused an epidemic, 2000 cases, 800 deaths. And this one was especially worrying because of such a high mortality, more than a third of those who were infected died. And it's thought that this virus came from camels um, originally. And again, lots of work went into vaccine development, and we learned more about how to make coronavirus vaccines. Uh, uh, Stephen Dorrell said that just before we started that Bill Gates was prophetic in 2015 um, about the coming pandemic. But actually, I think scientists around the world were already aware of this, and advisors to our government um, set up the UK vaccine R&D network in 2015 uh, with 120 million to drive development of new vaccines against outbreak pathogens uh, uh, different types of bacteria and virus that can cause outbreaks. And here you can see the list um, of diseases which the government set in 2015 uh, as possible causes of the next pandemic. And you can see uh, the second on the list is MERS, Uh, which was one of the coronaviruses, and so there's a big injection of funding uh, to try and establish ways of making a coronavirus vaccine. Uh, At the top of the list is something called unknown, or also known as disease X, and that's because we recognised at that time that we really didn't know uh, what the particular virus or bacterium was which would cause the next pandemic, and so we had to develop technologies which would allow us to respond quickly to whatever that was. And that's one of the other really important things which happened um, over the last five years. Now, uh, there are um, various uh, vaccines that had been developed for MERS. And here in Oxford, we worked on um, a vaccine which is uh, called CHADOX, and I'll tell you a bit about that in a moment. And uh, we had data, first of all, from mice, um, which are, are shown here. And uh, just on the graph on the right, uh, you can see uh, that the, uh, the mice Um, who were vaccinated, which is the top lines, uh, did very well. Those who were not vaccinated, when they were exposed to the MERS coronavirus, they lost weight. And uh, that is uh, a demonstration of these um, antibodies, which were made uh, in response to the vaccine, uh, protected these animals um, uh, when they were then exposed to the virus. And in fact, this uh, vaccine went on into trials in humans, Um, and we already have data showing that we can make immune responses in humans with the MERS coronavirus. Uh, Fortunately, that virus has disappeared from the world, at least for now, and so it's not been possible to to test whether it actually works in people. We know it makes good immune responses, but no evidence so far that it protects because there's no virus. And the way uh, that these vaccines work is that the gene from the spike protein uh, that I mentioned before from the coronavirus Um, is put into an an adenovirus, um, in this case an adenovirus which infects chimpanzees and this virus has been genetically modified so it can't cause disease in humans, it can't replicate and and make new uh, baby viruses when it infects people Uh, but it can express uh, the the gene that that makes the spike protein and so that when it's injected into the muscle uh, then Uh, the vaccinee, the person being vaccinated, develops immune responses against the spike protein to protect them if they ever meet the coronavirus in the wild. And uh, I won't go through this, but this shows in detail um, how uh, the gene from coronavirus is inserted into the adenovirus, it's then injected into the muscle, and the protein is made and uh, generates an immune response. So the normal process of vaccine development, I think rather depressingly, takes between five and 10 years. And we start off with designing a vaccine, animal studies, which take a year or two. Then we finally manufacture a small scale of vaccine and start trials in humans, uh, which happens here in phase one. We look at the results of those and then move to phase two trials, often in the target population, and then much larger phase three trials Um, which are then undertaken Um, and uh, then uh, at about the same time that uh, we uh, are doing the phase 3 trials if we've got good evidence the vaccine is going to work uh, the big effort technical problem of upscaling to to very large numbers of doses um, occurs and then there's a license sometime um, after the phase 3 trial so that they can be used and I put on here 5 to 10 years and that, that may sound depressing But if we look at, for example, the meningitis to many people, uh, that vaccine took 15 years from the vaccine design end all the way through to actually being licensed and used in the UK. So what we're trying to do um, here with uh, the coronavirus vaccine um, is to find ways of uh, getting there more quickly. And the only way to do that is to run many of these different phases of development um, in parallel. And you'll have heard in the the media uh, that it takes uh, somewhere between uh, 12 and 18 months to make a vaccine. Uh, But uh, if we do many of these things at risk, including upscaling of the manufacturing so that we'd have millions or billions of doses uh, quickly before we even know if the vaccine works, it's possible to get there uh, much more quickly and uh, the uh, program that we're running here in Oxford at the moment we're trying to do exactly this by uh, run all of these studies uh, as close as as much as possible um, in parallel and that that leaves many questions that have to be addressed is it safe well we we're working with a platform the same as the MERS vaccine uh, which we already know um, is safe um, in humans do we get an immune response we have studies um, ongoing in animals and we'll have human studies in a few weeks from now, which will tell us whether we make an immune response. A really difficult question is whether it protects against infection. So we, uh, and all of the vaccine developers are facing this question, by the time we've got into the human testing, uh, it may be that lockdown means there's not very much virus around. So if we vaccinate groups of people, either with our coronavirus vaccine or a control vaccine, and there is no coronavirus around, we won't know if the vaccine has protected the volunteers or not. And this could be a major hold up to development. If we've made what could be very good vaccines, but we can't prove that they work. Uh, There's another question, which is around, if you've been vaccinated, could that make your uh, disease worse? Could it be that an uh, an aberrant immune response happens, uh, which increases the risk of of harm uh, when you then meet the, the virus? And lastly, how long does protection last and do we need to give any booster doses um, of vaccines? So, an effective vaccine, if we have one, could prevent a second wave, uh, could allow economies to reopen uh, but there's a major challenge ahead in getting there um, quickly. Um, And certainly, uh, it could be particularly important to vaccinate those in high risk groups. One of the difficulties there is it's much harder to make a vaccine which protects older adults where the immune system is not as robust um, as it is um, in younger adults. And Our efforts here uh, in Oxford started towards the end of January when the, uh, the genome of the coronavirus was available from China. Um, and now we're uh, very close to starting uh, the trials uh, in humans. We've already screened many hundreds of volunteers to check they're uh, fully healthy and they have uh, given consent to take part, and we should be starting very soon. And I'll end there.
0: Andrew, thank you very much indeed. That was an uh, uh, extraordinarily authoritative uh, and um, informative uh, quick view of the issues that are involved in the development of a vaccine. Can I just ask, before we, I ask Hugo to speak, on this, the specifics of MERS, I was very taken uh, incredibly uh, dangerous uh, coronavirus apparently you said now uh, either extinct or dormant is that something that we can be sort of confident of do we where where are we in terms of understanding where other coronaviruses are
1: um, well I, I'm, I'm a pediatrician and I've spent um, uh, the last uh, 30 years of my career Um, looking after children um, who have various respiratory infections. And every winter we see lots of coronaviruses in in children. So coronaviruses are with us and they have been for um, millennia. And most of them don't seem to cause very severe disease. And that's a really interesting point because it could be that coronaviruses always cause mild disease in children. And because we've had all of these other coronaviruses in childhood, We see no problems in adults. And what's different with this new coronavirus um, is that we have no pre-existing immunity to it. We didn't meet it in childhood, which is why it causes such a big problem um, in in, uh, adults and particularly older adults. Um, So I think the first thing to say is I'd be very surprised if this coronavirus just fades out and disappears. It's too good at transmitting from person to person. I think whatever we do, it's going to be with us Um, In the years ahead, the question about MERS coronavirus is a different one. It almost certainly was transmitted uh, from camels, and uh, the vaccines are being developed, are both being developed for humans in case it re emerges, um, but also people are looking at vaccines for camels uh, to try to make sure that uh, it it can't uh, re emerge. Uh, But I, I think the reality is that there are lots of coronaviruses out there that infect animals, and it is not Uh, unthinkable that another one might jump species in the future. If we had a MERS-like coronavirus that transmitted as easily as this new coronavirus does, uh, the the population of the planet would be decimated.
0: And and it's a a chilling answer, but a a scientifically direct one. Thank you. Uh, on that note, perhaps I can turn to uh, Hugo Fry, who I mentioned earlier is our partner in uh, the in this uh, virtual breakfast. He's the UK managing director of Sanofi, and uh, Hugo is involved in the development both of therapies and of vaccinations. Uh, and uh, we're looking forward to what you have to say, Hugo.
2: Thank you, Stephen. Thank, thank you, Andrew, for, for a great platform which to speak. I'll only speak for five to ten minutes and give the maximum chance for, for questions afterwards. Uh, the, so the first point I was going to make in terms of the development, um, before I go into the specifics, was it was much, much easier, not uh, our pleasure at all, for Sanofi to partner instantly in the US versus Europe or anywhere else in the world. I think there's a real lesson uh, for policymakers on preparation there. So we heard Andrew say that that, that there is um, some reasonably good efforts being made in uh, the UK specifically, but you can imagine in terms of scale of funding uh, and ability that compared to an institution that's attached to the US Department of Health, this institution, BADA, Um, The Biomedical R&D Authority, I mean, it's just, you can't compare in terms of size and resource and ability to to support a a research and development program for a pandemic like this. And there's definitely a a call that Europe needs to get together and have an equal level of of preparedness. You know, it, it is independent of the regime that's in the White House. It is really what has been planned for years and years. I mean, there are things like this that we can be proud of. Gordon Brown pushed the International Society to to help fund uh, manufacturing and upscale manufacturing, which I'll come on to later. Um, But I think that that there is a policy question Europe-wide about the, the size of the preparedness and the budget and the resource behind that. Now, that that being said, so um, Sanofi, we have um, two vaccine candidates currently in the various stages of development. We have several, well, two, I said two, two platforms. The first platform has several candidates in the early stages of development. There's no point going to those specifically. And we have uh, one candidate that is in preclinical and that could go into uh, clinic clinic if at this preclinical stage all the signs are good this summer. And it's exactly as the timeline said, with our our normal scale will be five to ten years. And uh, and, and here we think this, if it's proven safe, if it's proven effective, uh, would be ready in 18 months. So we we'll go into the clinic in the summer and then uh, phase three uh, next year. And, and in 18 months, we'd have something. Now that, that is based on, again, uh, and we we'll talk about MERS. This one's based on pre-work that's already been done on SARS. So when the SARS vaccine started, we had a promising candidate. One stage that was shelved, but it's been taken off the shelf and it looks very promising for COVID-19. and the the technology that's being used to develop it is one we currently use for what in the uk is referred to as cell-based flu vaccines and it's a quite a good technology because you can ramp up the manufacturing uh slightly more easily in these types of this type of technology so uh i mean certainly as a a company we take the view of whoever gets there first great um uh, but uh, we really feel that uh Doing our bit in these two technologies. There's there's one other important thing that hasn't been mentioned yet that I would add into this. When you're looking to the upscaling of vaccines, so they're, they're getting into hundreds of millions, billions of doses. I mean, billions. I, I, I don't know. At the moment, we we because we're the world's biggest flu vaccine producer, we produce more actual physical vaccine than anyone else. And even in a even in flu season, we our biggest production is. 220, 240 million doses. So, that just gives you an order of magnitude of what what we might be talking about uh, going further. But um, but one of the things you can do, it's all about yield when you're manufacturing. And if you can get more yield, um, obviously you don't need the the volume so much. And there's things you can do. There's one technology called adjuvants which enhance the uh, the effectiveness and so you need smaller amounts, and therefore you can produce more vaccines. And then that, that kind of technology in the in the science space is really important for them the upscaling later on and, and having enough vaccines to go forward. And, and, and that's why when you hear people like us say, Well, today, in partnership with BARDA in the US and our existing technology, we can produce today. Uh, For COVID 19, somewhere between 100 and 600 million doses. Why is there such a big window? Well, because we don't know what technology is going to use. If it's a technology where you use smaller volumes, we can produce many more doses. And then hopefully, you'll see this week that we'll announce something, uh, and this is definitely Jam House rules. Hopefully, this week we'll announce something with another company which will enhance the possibility. Of, of reducing the volume so therefore when if we do eventually get uh, a vaccine uh, for COVID-19 the volumes required will be smaller we'll be able to upscale much faster and produce many more doses. Um, the one thing I'd say is well, again in that as an implication lots of questions we get is about well you produce hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of vaccines today. can't you just turn that one over COVID over to COVID-19 production of a vaccine. Well, theoretically, not every plant, but a lot of plants could. And then you've got what's called filling and packaging facilities. But, um, you know, uh, we don't want the legacy of COVID-19 to be the emergence of other the diseases that are already um, almost eradicated or being controlled very well. And we've already seen around the world that, There'd be data, I think, coming out soon from public health that usually monthly in some cases. But certainly in France, where we get real-time data, vaccination programmes have been delayed and dropped off. I mean, our schools are closed, so some of the UK programmes are delivered through schools. But until schools come back or find an alternative, it's very difficult. So that is one legacy we don't want COVID-19 to do, is the re-emergence of measles or, or polio or whooping cough or anything like that so 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 that 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 that's really important i think um, one other thing i'd say in all this is something um around the integrity of internal markets as well so so there is a temptation and you hear it all the time of, of governments saying oh well, we need to look after our own and kind of close the borders, close the, that is massively problematic for a company like ours. We work on global supply chains, global collaboration. You know, the, 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 it doesn't matter what you read in the paper, we work on collaboration all the time with academic institutions like Oxford or Cambridge or Imperial or all over the world uh, or whether it's with other companies. Or We rely on that collaboration and anything that closes borders and, and stops integrity of that market, even for supply chains as well, is going to be massively problematic. We're, we're actually very good at managing our global supply chains. And if the government puts a spanner in the works, it, it, is, it really does uh, and can cause problems there in terms of getting that flowing out. So I think that's it. The one last point I think is maybe on the regulatory, as these vaccines come through the regulatory system. um, The MHRA in the UK, is I mean, it's probably, I mean, it's as good as anything in the world, and they do show really, especially the world of vaccines, really good flexibility and speed and understanding and expertise would encourage that. One of the things we've seen in the past when vaccines come through is, even in centralized procedures like in, in, in Europe, you get other companies revalidating and retesting vaccines. Now, again, as soon as you start retesting vaccines, by definition, not because there's anything wrong with them, but tests aren't the same, they're not identical, they're, they're carried out by different people, and you, use, you lose batches and you, you, you lose yield. To your vaccines, so that as well could be something that could be looked at to make sure that there's some kind of harmonization here, especially in testing and release, that, that would maintain the level of the volumes of vaccines we need to vaccinate as many people as possible rather than administratively you losing batches and yield of vaccines.